proper grade More than I've asked for, more than I'm worth Grace on top of grace And how sweet the sound Once lost and now found Heaven came down And grace rescued me With your grace on top of grace Lord, how you've loved Lord, how you've loved me I don't deserve Grace on top of grace More than I've asked for More than I've earned Grace on top of grace And how sweet the sound once lost and now found heaven came down and grace rescued me hallelujah I am free from my sin and penalty oh at the cross you took my place with your grace on top of grace with your grace on top of grace How sweet the sound Would have sweet the sound Once lost and now found Heaven Came down, grace rescued me. Oh, and how sweet the sound, once lost and now found. Heaven came down, grace rescued me. Carpenter's Way, all 10 of you here this morning. <laughs> kind of figured nobody would show up, sitting that, losing that hour of sleep. Like, I'm just going to sleep in and watch this from the house today. If you're here, uh, you're more than welcome to stand and worship with us if you're online. Please don't be a spectator. Please join in with us.
Once in pieces I'm complete My Redeemer now resides He lives in me Oh, He is alive And I am bound to death no more oh, He is alive in Jesus Christ always where the Lamb of God once lay there's victory in an empty grave with resurrection power, oh, I will sing, yes, I will join us read today's scripture let all that I am wait quietly before God for my hope is in him he alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress where I will not be shaken my victory and honor come from God alone he is my refuge a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. 
You deserve more glory. You deserve more than we can give. You deserve more honor than all the words of praise. Let every thought, let every Bring us to your throne So we give our lives to worship you And glorify your name Filled with joy in your presence Lord, we offer all we
filled with joy in your presence here lord we offer all we have before creation breathed its first breath and all there was to be was not yet you were seated there on your throne high and glorious god alone you're the one i worship and adore every moment leaves me wanting more in your presence i am overcome i sing your praise at the top of my love you you are God the great I am holy eternal King and
Let's pray. Father God, as we sing through these songs, we're reminded of your goodness. We're reminded of what you have done for us, Lord, that you deserve more than we can give. And, and we're reminded of your grace and your mercy, how you've saved us and brought us into your family. Lord, we, we just stand in awe. We don't, we don't have the words sometimes to speak. So we say thank you. We say thank you, Lord, for finding us where we are and bringing us into your family. And now that we can stand in your presence and we can sing your songs and we can worship you and we can come into you and make our requests known as your word says. So we thank you so much. God, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our, our minds and our ears to hear what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. It is good to see you guys. Good to see that your, uh, your phones reset to the correct time. So uh, congratulations on that. And hope you guys had a great spring break. And uh, for those of you who don't have school-age kids or are not educators, hope you had a week. And uh, you ever thought about that? I mean, it's like, hey, spring break. Well, at some point, you don't get a spring break anymore, right? Maybe my kids can fail a couple of years, so I can get a spring break. I don't know. No, don't, because that would not be good. Um, but it is great to see you guys this morning, and uh, thank you for spending some time with us together as we worship. And I'm excited this morning to, uh, to sit and to listen to Zach. Uh, kind of share the word with us, kind of share the word. I mean, hopefully share the word, not kind of, that'd be weird. But it's great to have Zach with us this morning. look forward to uh, hearing what God has to say through him. And uh, I do want to make a couple of quick announcements, and uh, there's a lot of them. Um, so just kind of pick one or two that you want to remember. That'd be great. Um, if you have been interested in finding out more about Carpenter's Way or how to join our little dysfunctional family, uh, we have our CW 101 class that's going to be coming up next week. And, uh, and so if you just want to learn more about Carpenter's Way, how we do things, why we do things, it's a great opportunity to do that. That'll be taking place from 9, starting at 930 uh, through about 1145 uh, in the library. And so if you're interested in that, uh, you can just show up or you can just uh, shoot me an email or Wendy an email this week. Let us know you're interested in coming and uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, Ignition used to be weekend, now it's Ignition seven hours. Um, it's going to be happening this coming Saturday. It's going to be taking place. Yeah, some, some of y'all got that. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. It's, I'm trying really hard this morning. Uh, yeah, so we used to do a whole, I, when I first came, it was like several days, and then it became a weekend, and now it's a couple hours, so that's awesome. Um, but we're, we're really excited. About, we initially we normally do in August uh, when school kicks off, and obviously this year was a little, little different, and so uh, and looking forward to this weekend. I know Adam's excited about it. Students are excited. If your student is not signed up, uh, you can still sign up in the student room, correct? And uh, 15 bucks. And so uh, if you have a student, make sure you uh, get on top of that. Um, also, Mother's Day out, uh, we'll be having a garage sale uh, in April, and they're taking donations. So as you're cleaning out things, if you want to donate to help support our Mother's Day out program, uh, please let us know. Just drop stuff off here. And then the last thing is... Uh, we are really, really excited about this summer as we, can, we begin to kind of open up things more and more. Uh, and we're excited this year. Some changes are going to be coming through our children's program. Uh, there's information about children's camp, preaching camp uh, that's out on the children's table, and you can sign up for those things. Your children can. Uh, and we're also excited about a new ministry that we're going to be launching this summer um, called Grow Camp. And so I want to encourage you to just kind of be watching your emails, uh, be watching the Facebook page as more information comes out in the next couple weeks about that. Um, but that's it for the announcements. I want to pray for us one more time and, uh, and then turn it over to Zach. All right. God, thanks so much for the day. And, and God, it's good just to be able to worship, to come and to be reminded of who you are and and to focus our hearts and our minds on you. So God, as that comes, I pray that uh, 
you'll just use him to speak your truth this morning, uh, that God, as he shares what you've laid on his heart, uh, like Chaz already said, that God, you would just prepare our hearts and minds to receive what you have through your word this morning. So we lift up this time, we lift Zach up to you. God, I pray that you would encourage us and you would challenge us, but most of all, remind us how much you incredibly love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. You guys look good. And you at home, too, who are watching online in your bathrobes, you too look good. You too look good. Well, it is good to be here. Uh, I see a few faces that I don't actually recognize. So if you don't know, my name is Zach Wilkie. I am Pastor Mark's son, and whenever he's away, for some reason, he gives me the privilege to come up here and talk bad about him. And so I get the opportunity to fill fill the pulpit, but I am so excited to be here. Um, My wife and I, we live in Dallas right now, and we are in the process of moving down here to Lufkin, East Texas, but we are a part of Carpenter's Way Online. Uh, We too watch in our bathrobes, but uh, we own it, so that's okay. But no, it's good to be here. I'm just so excited about this morning. I, uh, I, I, I think God has something really, really important for us today, and I, I can say with j- just complete honesty that this was probably one of the more convicting writing experiences I've had in a long time, and I'm just so excited about today. But I, I always like to start with reminding us that, that nothing this morning, nothing happens outside of the direct work of God. Nothing that I say, nothing that I do is of any substance unless it is given substance by God. And so I always want to start by first asking you as the body and you at home to pray with me and to pray for me as I preach, because this process is two-way. And, and I ask that please you be praying with me and for me that God show us something from today. So with that, I want to pray, and, uh, and we'll jump in. You guys ready? Awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, thank you for this place, for this body. We, uh, I cherish the church. I cherish this place that, that is an extension of your rest, an extension of your peace. God, thank you for the, the, the building we have here to come together, to, to jump into your word, to dive into your word. And as we do so, God, I pray that you um, prepare our hearts, prepare our mind as we sang this morning to, to hear from you. God, convict us, grow us, edify us, and let us not be um, foreign or afraid of, of conviction and growth. It's in your name. Amen. So my one-year-old son doesn't understand that I know more than him. He hasn't grasped the concept that, uh, that, that there's knowledge or wisdom or understanding yet. He's one, so he kind of just lives in the moment, you know? So it's kind of, right now at this stage, it's this toy, then that toy, then food, then this toy and that toy and food, and then some more food, and then this toy and that toy, and probably a poop somewhere in there. But it's so fun to watch as he like tries to, to yank something off a table or he experiences the world not understanding that there's consequences or something bigger going on around him. So, you know, I'll watch him go up to a table with like a hairbrush or a pan. Our house is just a death trap. But uh, something leaning on it and he'll yank it and it'll fall on him and he'll feel the consequences in a moment because he didn't realize there was something bigger going on. So oftentimes I find myself following him around the house, picking up items, picking up things that I didn't even know could kill someone until I was a parent. But, you know, everything's a death trap at this point. And, and so I follow him around the house, and I'm picking up all the things he likes to grab. And for some reason, outlets is just his thing now. 
He's going to be an electrician or something. So I'm having to like cover up outlets and do all this thing and try to protect him from the world that he doesn't know about. And because he doesn't understand that there's actually something bigger going on around him. There's a world. There's knowledge. There's consequences. And as I was studying for what we're going to be reading today in Acts 9, I kind of thought about this because I realized, man, what we're going to look at with Saul's conversion, it's kind of the same situation. God had this cool plan for Saul. This, this awesome plan that, that he had no idea was happening. Even from the moment of him growing up and his studying, he didn't know God had a plan, something bigger going on around him. God had a direct plan for his life. And at the moment where God wanted to reveal himself, he did. That God was protecting him in certain moments. He was allowing him to fall into sin in certain moments simply because God had a plan. Something was bigger going on around Paul that Paul didn't know about. Or Saul, as we're going to see in Acts 9. So I, I was just thinking about this. I was like, man, this is so cool. God is just the ultimate puppeteer here in this story. In the same way I have to follow my son around and kind of create this safe world for him that truly really doesn't exist in the real world. So Saul is just living out this plan that God has in Acts 9. It's so, so cool. So please, if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump right in Acts 9, 1 through 31. <clears throat> Acts 9, verses 1 through 31. So the year is somewhere between A.D. 33 and 36. As we've seen, so the church at this point is growing like crazy. You know, we've, we've read up to Acts 9 at this point, and we understand the, the church is growing despite the massive persecution taking place. The church is actually, at this point, mostly made up of Jewish converts. Uh, they also were, might be referred to as Hellenists. They were more uh, Greek Jews, they were more Greek Jewish people. You have like the traditional Orthodox Jewish people who were from Israel and Jerusalem. And then you had the Hellenists who were more influenced by Greek culture. So we see a lot of Hellenist Jewish people converting to Christianity at this point. And at this point, the church is really just mostly located in Israel and its surrounding areas. It has not branched out to the rest of the world just yet. It's going to happen in Acts. You're going to see it. But not yet. We're still, we're still in these early infant infant days, young days of the church, where it's just in this immediate area, and the, the, the preparation for the explosion of the good news of Christ is about to take place. But the momentum is slightly interrupted with the story in Acts 9. So, you know, up to this point, we see Stephen, we see the, you know, Pentecost, we see kind of the, the organization of the church, of the eschatos up to this point. But what we see here in Acts 9 is an interruption for just a minute where we take a look at one individual named Saul. See, Saul was a man from, a Jewish leader from Asia Minor. Uh, he was born and grew up in Tarsus. Uh, for most of his life, he actually grew up in what was most likely a middle to lower class, and he learned to work with his hands. He was a tent maker. He, was, he, he made tents. He learned to use little hand tools, and he could travel anywhere to do this. So it was actually very convenient for what God would do later in his life to make ends meet. But as he grew up, he actually went into Jewish school, and he stuttered, st stuttered. He studied under a, a leading Pharisee named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was like one of the smartest minds of the time, right? He was a brilliant Jewish scholar, a brilliant man. And so Saul had the opportunity to study under this guy. And Saul, too, became one of the most smart, educated Jewish leaders there were. Anyone who studied under Gamaliel would truly become a leader in the Jewish community at the time. And so uh, because of this training, Saul came to a point in his life where he looked at all the Jewish converts, all the Hellenist Jews, post 
uh, Christ's uh, ascension, and he was realizing, you know, these Jewish converts, they are not following Jewish law. They are committing idolatry by following this man, Jesus. They're not, follow- they're not following the, the uh, Ten Commandments. They're not following the, the Decalogue. They are denying the true God of the Jewish faith. And because of that, he believed that the consequences must reflect the Jewish law, so he would arrest them, or in some cases, people would be put to death because of their conversion to Christianity. This was Saul's place in Acts 9. So he was going around being commissioned by the Jewish leaders to gather up Jewish converts and essentially persecute them. And many of you know this story. You know this of Saul. What's interesting to me is, is, is in Acts 9, he's on his way to Damascus. See, up to this point, most of his persecute, persecuting work was done in Tarsus, in that area, in, in Asia Minor. But at this point, he was moving up over to Damascus, around the Mediterranean Sea, down, actually. And he, to do this, he actually had to go to the Jewish high priests in Jerusalem and had them write letters to the Jewish leaders in Damascus to ask permission to go to Damascus and continue this, this work of, of persecution of the Christian people. Now, what's interesting to me about this is, is this letter that the high priest had to have written would have probably gone to the king of Damascus at the time. His name was King Aretas. Aretas I don't know how to say it. I'm too southern for that. But he, he essentially approved of Saul's work because by allowing for this persecution of the Christian people, the king of Damascus, the leader, thought he might be able to gain favor with the anti-Roman Jewish people. So there was a lot of political elements of this, of this situation, right? And so Saul got the approval he wanted, and he began his journey with his group of men from Tarsus to Damascus. And this is where we begin in Acts 9, verse 1. Acts 9, verse 1, right here. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He found, excuse me, he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So Paul was on his mission to arrest these, quote-unquote, traitors, he, he, he had a very clear purpose in mind. In verse 3, As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice, a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is where things begin to shift. See, the Lord Jesus Christ interrupts Saul with this massive question. Huge question. He shows himself to Saul, who actually didn't believe Christ was raised at all. In fact, there's, there's good reason to believe Saul was actually in Jerusalem at the time of Christ's, pers- or Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. But Saul had to believe that Christ did not resurrect. Perhaps he thought this Christ figure that Jesus Christ was just another prophet or another you know, false teacher. Saul did not believe in the resurrected Christ up to this point. But the, in, in, in the midst of this, Jesus Christ shown himself in the form of light to Saul, which is so interesting because think of the darkness and the dark path of which Saul was walking. It's just a, I just think it's beautiful symbolism here. So Saul in his darkness is uh, convicted here, questioned by Jesus Christ, showing himself in the form of light. Why are you persecuting me? So Saul is clearly not persecuting Jesus, right? 
He's not persecuting Jesus personally. He's not persecuting the Lord personally. He's persecuting the Jewish converts who had, in salvation, in their uh, conversion, committed their life to following Jesus Christ. Therefore, he was actually persecuting the big C, capital C, church, the global church. Yet Jesus Christ asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is so cool. This is so like, just, just Jesus' own words here, that, that, that Jesus is connected to the body of Christ. I think it's easy to just read past this and, and think, oh yeah, he was persecuting Jesus. No, Paul, excuse me, Saul was persecuting the church, and Jesus, who is bound to the church, feels the ache of the church, feels the persecution of the church, who intercedes for his body, is actually asking Saul, hey, why are you persecuting my body? Why are you persecuting me? Look at how united Christ sees himself to us. Look at how personal this is for Christ. Therefore, when any one of us is persecuted for our faith, so is Christ. So are all of us. So he asks Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? Saul asked in verse 5. Saul responds by asking who this light is. However, yet he calls him Lord. Uh, that word in the Greek, you know I love Greek, is Kyrie. It's not outrageous for him to use the word Kyrie here because it was actually used for like sir a lot. It was like a respect. So like I might say sir to you, yes sir. Uh, Lord, Kyrie was off common word used for like respect. But in context, it's very likely that this word Kyrie was used in the other form, a name of God. So, most likely, Saul recognizes who this is, but in his moment of shock, he's like, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Like, why are you doing this to me? Who are you, Lord? So Jesus answers the question. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He's bound to the church. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now we're getting good. I am Jesus. I'm the one you are persecuting. The head of the church. And when you mess with his body, you mess with him. The church is like a lion. I think we have this idea that we have to protect the church from the world. But in reality, the way the church works, united to God, is like a lion. You don't protect a lion. You just unlock the cage. God is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church, united to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are not alone in this life. Sometimes we have this ideology that we have to protect God from the world, when in reality, he's protecting us because we are bound to him. Saul thought he could squash the Jewish idolatry by striking fear in the converts. Rather, he messed with God himself. And now he was facing the offended, Jesus. So Christ instructs Saul to head into Damascus. But he does so with one of my favorite words in the Greek. Anastami. Anastami means to rise up, to get up, to resurrect. This word is used six times in these few verses. Even more so, anytime this word is used in the New Testament, you know something cool is about to follow. Anytime anastami comes up, arise up, get up. Anytime God says get up, something's about to happen. Like, buckle down. (laughs) 
fasten your seatbelt. When the Lord says get up, something's about to happen. So Saul, who, case in point, was knocked to his knees by this intervention, has to get up. He said, get up, rise up, and go into Damascus. So verse 7, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Important note, Saul's men didn't see the light. Jesus did not reveal himself to Saul's men at that moment. He only showed himself to Saul because God had a plan for Saul here. The men heard the voice, but they did not see Christ. This is proven true when Saul opens his eyes to find he is blind. Saul saw the glory of Jesus. Well, I mean, what irony here. Saul and his, and his death squad from Tarsus are riding on saddle to, to, to Damascus with religious, pious pride. However, he enters Damascus like a child having to be led by his men with no strength, not even able to see. In an instant, his entire life worldview changes. The Lord Jesus Christ leveled Saul in a matter of seconds, and his life was immediately changed. Now the camera shifts a bit in the story. So picture we, we kind of jump over to another scene happening about the same time in verse 10. Now there's a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. Verse 11, the Lord said, Go over to State Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man named Tarsus, or a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so, we, or so he can see again. The Lord tells Ananias to go to, to go to Saul's location in Damascus. Now, what I think is so cool here is how the Lord is kind of, well, he really is playing puppeteer, right? So at the very same moment, the Lord is speaking to Ananias in a vision. He also is listening to Saul pray. You know, not often do we really get to see the true divinity of God, the true cool power God has, but right here we see a glimpse. Hey, right now I'm talking to you, but I'm also listening to Saul. And so, so uh, God talks to Ananias, tells him, hey, go over to Straight Street. And that is really hard for me to say. I'm from Chicago, and some, I'm used to State Street, or I've lived in Chicago. So Straight Street, Straight Street. I should have practiced that. Straight Street. Tells him to go over to Straight Street and, and, and talk to, to Saul, to minister to Saul. And Ananias isn't so fond of this idea. No, I guess nor would I. But Lord, verse 13, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Now, Ananias, in my opinion, is probably thinking a little bit logically here. He's thinking a little like a preservationist, right? He knew Saul's directive in Damascus and is like, uh, Lord, <laughs> I want to do your work. I'm super cool doing your work, but uh, you realize this guy will arrest me on sight, right, the moment he sees me. I'm not sure this is such a good idea. Have you thought this one out? 
But what Ananias wasn't aware of is the work that God was doing in that very moment in Saul's heart. And the Lord goes on. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Wow. (laughs) The Lord digs in a little bit. He goes, dude, 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 Ananias, stop asking questions. I got a plan for Saul. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be amazing. So just go do what I said. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This is a salvation story. This is a conversion story. This is not your, your mama's salvation story, is it? Saul was a terrorist to the Christian people. Christ confronts him, levels his pride, causes him to go blind by showing him his glory, and then goes on to show us that Saul is going to suffer for his own name's sake. We often discuss the beautiful aspects of salvation, and there are so many. the abounding grace, the eternal salvation, the life after death, the never-ending love from the God of creation. However, what can easily be hidden behind the facade of positivity that comes with a heart filled with the joy of the Lord that is true and genuine is often forgetting the demand to suffer for him, to pick up our cross and follow him. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, if you've read this like I have in the past, you've thought, perhaps read this, this line as, as the punishment for Saul's actions. But I want to make a very clear point here. This statement of Jesus Christ to Ananias, that he will suffer for my name's sake, is not any type of punishment of, for Saul's previous life here as a non-believer. This is God's plan for a higher and better calling for Saul. I think I often read this like, yeah, Saul was a bad dude, so now he's got to suffer for God's name's sake. In reality, Saul is going to become the chief of believers, the, the, the picture of the epistle of the New Testament, and God's ultimate plan is to honor him with such a title by making him suffer. Which, of course, is part of his growth. <laughs> But this just this, this, this blew my mind by just the, the, the authority God has in that statement when he talks to Ananias. And so you notice very quickly, there's no other dialogue. <laughs> Verse 17, Ananias went up and found Saul. It's pretty straightforward. He didn't, he's, he didn't ask any more questions. Oh, that's right, you're in control. Okay. So he laid his hands on him and said, Brother, come on. This guy was coming to Damascus to kill Christians, and now Ananias calls him brother. Only God, guys. Only God. Brother Saul. He's also Southern Baptist. <laughs> oh, man. That was not in my notes. That was, you guys can, you, you're welcome. That one's free. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up, Anastami, he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. 
Ananias follows the Lord's instructions and Saul regains his sight. I love how, this is so cool to me, Saul's spiritual condition is dealt with first before his physical condition. Saul's spiritual condition is dealt with first before his physical condition. He is given fed spiritual, he's fed spiritual food first, then he was given physical food. I just thought that was so cool. That, so oftentimes to me, I'm like, all right, let me, Lord, let me, let me get a little stronger before you start to work on my heart a little bit. In reality, it's like, no, spiritual food, then physical food. So he, Anastami, he gets up and was baptized. This, of course, is not uh, saving waters. This is, this is symbolism. You know, Saul's water baptism is a sign and seal displaying his submission to the Lord and represent his spiritual baptism that he just encountered where his sinful soul is baptized in the blood of Christ and raised to new life in him. And after this, after this, Saul then eats and regains his physical strength. And this completes Saul's call to uh, salvation and his conversion. A little unorthodox, right? A little not, not traditional. <laughs> and the narrative at this point now shifts, and we begin looking at Saul's early days of ministry. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying he indeed is the Son of God. It's probably safe to say this was one of Saul's simpler messages. He was brand new in the faith. But what, after he found the Lord and was baptized both spiritually and then physically, his passion became apparent, and he immediately went to the synagogue and started doing the Lord's work. He devoted his, 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 his life to the Lord. He went right to the synagogues in front of the same leaders who supported his persecution and preached to them that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and something really cool here is, you know, you would, I, I would have assumed maybe Saul's first message would be, you know, how sinful those Jewish leaders are or, you know, how off-kilter they are off message or, you know, God's forgiveness of sins or his resurrection. But, but his first message to, to, to people is much simpler than that. It's the, the, the foundational truth as we talked about here, the core value, the most radical thing we can say, and it's simply that Jesus is the Son of God. That all other things stem out from that. That is his very simple sermon. And if there's one sermon to preach, that's it. Jesus is the Son of God. That's his sermon. That was his first one. Of course, the observers of Saul's message was received as you would expect. These Jewish leaders received it like this. 21. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them to chains to the leading priests? They're like, well, wait a minute. I know that dude. He was just coming here to kill a bunch of people, and now he's, now he's, now he's with them? What? what? We're going to see throughout Saul's journey as we go through the, this, this, this study of Acts in the, the body series that this is just the start, that Saul's past here is going to follow him. Even more so, it's actually used as a tool by the Lord. Case in point, verse 22, Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. I think this is so cool. You guys know I'm a bit of an academic, right? You know, you know I love the nerdy things. 
I think it's so cool that, that God took Saul, this very educated man, changes his life, sends him out to go do the Lord's work, in, a very, in the infancy of his faith, Saul begins preaching and is already convincing people objectively that Jesus is the Son of God and was resurrected from the dead. God is using the tool set Saul had, his intelligence. I just think that's so cool. That, that he, Saul did not have to take a spiritual gift assessment. <laughs> that God used him where he was, used the skill set he had to do his work. Verse 23, after a while, some Jews plotted together to kill him. They were watching him for day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through the opening in the city wall. Now, as we would expect, Saul's quick life change is not accepted by his former peers. Rather, they get very angry and they attempt to kill him. Fortunately, the, the, the very believers that he was persecuting are now his brothers and sisters. They preserved his life by sneaking him out of town. You know, one of the conversations Dad and I have so often, uh, just when we're sitting around, is, you know, who would we like to be like in the Bible? If we could pick one person to, to follow after, after, you know, beyond Jesus Christ, who would be the person that we would like to, to follow? You know, I always say, I want to be Saul. Or, you know, I want to, I want to be Peter. You know, all those, all those Bible schooly things that I was taught. But one we always, we always fall on is, man, how, how inspiring is it to maybe follow after these quiet, unknown believers that snuck Saul out of town? You know, they probably were taking every risk, probably might lose their life for it. They had just uh, been on the death list of this individual and now are helping him to get out of town. I mean, what faith does that take? What trust does that take? What does it take to, to, to trust God to a level where your accuser is now your brother and you help him? I just, I, I'm just blown away by that faith. And this is the only time they're mentioned in Scripture, maybe in Hebrews, where we talk about the, 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 the great individuals of faith, their reference. But man, if there's someone to follow after, it's those who don't seek the praise. They just do the Lord's work and trust him with such uh, humility and such devotion. Verse 26, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. <laughs> I think that's funny. Hey, honey, there's someone here who wants to meet you. What's his name? Saul. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, thank you. I've got appointments all day. <laughs> got to take the dog to the vet. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told, him, or told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So, he, so Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. <laughs> Such a quick statement. When the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. Man, it's apparent God's work is in this, right? In this very short amount of time, Saul is quickly working his way into the fabric of the early church. People feared him. 
for obvious reasons. But on the flip, on the flip side, faithful ones like, like Barnabas spoke out in support of Saul, and his, his impact is already is, is becoming well-known in the church. In fact, his work is so impactful, he again almost loses his life and nearly escapes. Really cool note here. If you study kind of the, the geography of this situation, the Greek-speaking Jews that Saul had to flee from here is the same sect of Jews that stoned Stephen. Now, we're going to look back here in just a minute. Those same sect of Jews that stoned Stephen had actually gone to Saul for approval to stone Stephen. So the same, not necessarily the same individuals, the same group of people that Saul had previously worked with in his work of persecution is now trying to kill him because he's now an enemy of them by being a friend of the Lord. This is only stuff that can happen by the work of the Lord. Like, we, this, this story is so watered down. Have you, are you seeing how crazy this is? This is insane. Verse 31, the church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, or Galilee, excuse me, and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord, and with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. The church began to grow incredibly rapidly just because of Saul's joint work of ministry had kicked off in what now will be the action-packed series we're going to see that is the rest of Acts. And this concludes our, 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 our conversion story in our first days of ministry of Saul. There is nothing in this narrative that makes logical sense. A persecutor of a people group becomes the primary example and leader of that people group. A man of pride becomes a man of humility. A blind man sees. This story is so beautiful because it is the story where the broken is healed, the violent is brought peace, and the prideful is made a servant. You know, at the end of this chapter, we, we see what the stoning of Stephen resulted in. I want to look back at that really quick in Acts 7, verses 55 through 60. It says this. Uh, when the members of the, of the Sanhedrin, this is verse 54 real quick. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. His prayer was answered. He prayed to the Lord in the moment of dying, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And only He is brought to Jesus Christ. He is made chief among the Christians who have of the true faithful believer. Stephen prays to God to forgive his accusers, and one of the accusers becomes a follower. Do you think Stephen's stoning was in vain? No, that was part of his plan. When I read Acts 7 next to Acts 9, I was like, oh my gosh. The chief terrorist became the chief persecuted. 
what in the world is this? This isn't religion. This isn't logical. This isn't objective. This is relationship, and his name is God. He calls you out of darkness into light. There is no logic about it. There's no traditional story. There's no aisle. There is only. suffering. That results in suffering. It's so easy to forget this, but as I read this story, I'm reminded God has such a big plan for us. He has such a big plan for each individual and then all of us as a church, and we have no idea what that looks like. We look at the world, and we think, how is God going to save this? When there is no, no limit of God's ability. How is God going to execute his plan when the world looks so crazy? We just so quickly forget that God has no ways of executing his plan that are limited to him. The story is cool, but I like to hear it from Saul's own words. In Acts 22, he actually tells his own story here. So we read it from the perspective of a narrative, uh, of, of a narrator, Luke. And now we're going to read this real quick in Acts 22 from the perspective of Saul himself. Brothers and esteemed fathers, he's preaching at this point, Paul said, and his name had changed. Listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. So I can't say that. And I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As his student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. And I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem, in chains to be punished. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. That's an interesting thing. He thought they saw the light, but we also know they didn't see the light. Saul's not perfect. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told, them, told me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you, you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. This is kind of a cool thing for me. I, uh, I am so self-analyzing, um, and oftentimes, you know, maybe you've had this where someone says something about you, maybe positive, and you're like, how do you see that? Because you know yourself. I think it's so cool here how Saul considers Ananias such a godly individual when probably Ananias is like, man, why did I question God? Why did I question God? From Saul's perspective, Ananias is this strong, you know, courageous guy, but from Ananias' perspective, he was like, I'm a sheep. I'm a sheep. I, just, I don't know. I just think that's cool. Anyway. 
Verse 14, then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard, what you are waiting for. Get up, or what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. Verse 17, after I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus standing, or excuse me, saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem, for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But the Lord, or but Lord, I argue, they certainly know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened until Paul said that word. Then they all began to shout, away with such a fellow, he isn't fit to live. They yelled, threw off their coats, and tossed a handfuls of dust into the air. God makes beauty from dust. He takes the most unlikely of people and makes him the chief of the faithful. Friends, what I think I feel or I fail to, to realize is that God is truly the God that makes all things new. Like he really does. One of the most beautiful things we believe as followers of God. Is, is, is creation ex nihilo. It's Latin. It simply means that, we, that God created everything out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. There was nothing until God spoke it into being. And we know that God doesn't change. He's immutable. And this remains true with us. See, he continues to create by calling people back to himself. He looks at little Zach. He looks at me with who was filled with utter absence of holiness, with nothingness, and he spoke salvation into me by somehow giving me the grace of God purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He died and rose again so that I can be bound to him as we're reading about in Acts. That he takes me, who is filled with just nothing, and gives me his beauty, gives me his love, gives me his grace simply so I can glorify him. Like, I don't know how someone can hear this story and understand it and doesn't just want to be a part of this. The life of Christ is the difference between light and dark, black and white, east and west. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. Revelation 21.5 says, And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. This series is called The Body. This series is named that because this is the origin story of the body of Christ. This is our origin story. It is a story that, that is, is repetitive in the life of everyone who finds God's peace, God's rest. I was lost and now I'm found. As a result, we are brought into the body of Christ and being bound by the Spirit. And God continues this work of creating by growing, not just as individuals, but us as a body in himself, making us more like him. This is so awesome and wonderful and beautiful and joyous and peaceful. But it comes with suffering. When God calls you into salvation, when God calls you to himself, he ushers in rest, as Hebrews says. He brings peace, according to the Gospel of Matthew. He brings joy, according to Philippians. He brings eternal life, according to John. He brings community, according to 1 Timothy. He brings strength, according to 1 Peter. 
And with salvation comes many wonderful qualities and blessings that each of the Gospels and Epistles will talk about in detail as you study them. However, what every one of these books shares in common, what they all talk about, is the denial of self, is the undoubtable persecution, the persistent hurt, the confounding exhaustion, the all discussed, the hardships that come to, in, the, in the life of a believer, which sharply escorts the wonder and the beauty and the peace. Saul fell madly in love with the idea of being a slave for Christ. As a result, there was nothing in this life he feared more or could bring him to his knees faster than God himself. When we truly fear God, when we understand who God is, a life of hardship and suffering that the believer will often, if not for sure, experience is actually a life of joy. In other words, God's plan for our lives will always be harder and better than we can ever imagine. God's plan for our life will always be harder and better than we can ever imagine. Matthew 16 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? When I studied this week, I realized there have, like I said, there are a few sermons that convicted me more than this. At one point, I, I sat in my office and I wept as I realized how much this message is fighting against my own desire for comfort. It made me continually come to a place where I had to, had to realize I had to deny my own beliefs and my own priorities in writing this. Because I am such a preservationist. I am such a, a protector. I want to protect my own world. I want to protect my family. I want to protect my church, my society. But God kept just reminding me of this truth that you cannot be in love with Christ and comfort at the same time. You cannot be in love with Christ and comfort at the same time. There is a world outside of these doors that is hurting. They are scratching at the walls of their existence, trying to scrape some remnant of meaning and purpose only to be sorely disappointed. There's no time like the present to give ourselves to God, to follow in Saul's footsteps, to say, I have nothing left. Saul was physically blind for only a few days. However, he lived a life after that with tunnel vision focused on God. The only thing that dude really saw in life and death was Jesus Christ. So should we. We need to live and breathe this stuff. We have got to arrive at a place in life and a place in our world where we say, in God, I'm doing this only in you. I surrender. I give up. I just want to be your servant. This is what I hope we gather from this story, that we wave the white flag in our life and we give it all to him. We stop, stop trying to protect or be or do something else and we just give ourselves to him each day in complete submission. Romans 10 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. 
I know many of you in here are strong believers, strong followers. But for those in here who don't know what I'm talking about or don't have this, I just want to take a moment really quick and say, you have got to talk to God. God has a plan for you. If you are listening online and you don't know Jesus Christ, I plead with you now to talk with him, to give your life to him. Because there is nothing in this world that will give you or love you like Jesus does. And even for those of us who are believers, if you're in here and you're exhausted from 2020, and you're looking at 2021 and you're like, does it have to keep going? Just give up and give yourself to God. I am so tired of trying to do this with my own ability. And I too often do. But I, I want to follow Saul's footsteps and, and come to a place where there is no other option. Where, where you can look at Zach and say, man, I don't know what God's doing in his life, but it's amazing. I want to live and breathe this stuff. I want people to know, just by the way I live, that man, that dude is obsessed with God. I want us to be, just be reminded that we are meant to be uncomfortable. On Wednesdays, we're watching through the Chosen series, and one of the best lines in that series, that, uh, it, which is a look of, at light of the life of Christ, is get used to different. I love this line. You know why? Because it reminds me every day to deny myself. Get used to not being like the world. Get used to being a follower of Christ. Get used to denying yourself. Get used to being devoted to him. Get used to being convicted. Get used, get used to the feeling of being edified and grown and living a life that you don't know what's going to happen. The Lord's Prayer says, give us today our daily bread. I am such a planner. This is hard for me to live like Saul does here, where every day God gives me what I need. And above all else, I plead with us that as a body, we can grow and understand what it means to just trust Christ, even perhaps when life provides suffering. Because now more than ever, I am convinced that the life of a believer is the life of of discomfort. And if you're sitting here and you're like, I didn't sign up for this, or this is a little intense, I plead with you to ask yourself where your devotions are. Because I've sat in a chair and I thought, wow, that's a little intense. I wasn't expecting that. And I had to come to the realization that, man, maybe that's, maybe that's my own pride. God's calling you to be devoted to him. You're supposed to be scared. You're supposed to hurt. But the, the awesome thing is with that comes joy and peace and beauty and, and glory and that is trusting God. Saul had nothing. He never, he, 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 he never after this experienced tons of wealth or, or easy life. He often starved many days. He often went through persecution. But man, he was joyful because he was devoted to God. And that's, that's my prayer. I was so convicted. I don't have some huge point for you. 
I was so convicted by this because I am such a preservationist. But we're going to see in the rest of Acts that when God works is when we're mostly at the end of ourselves. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the goodness of, of, of you to us. We, we thank you for your joy, your peace, your rest. There is nothing like that. But God, as we every day have to fight our own desire to cling to our own ability or cling to our own sufficiency, God, I, I plead and pray that you, you fill us with your love, you fill us with your heart so that we are totally devoted to you. Let people in this town look at Carpenter's Way and think we are just so insanely crazy about Jesus. God, may we as a body be the place that Lufkin looks at and says, man, I don't know where else to go. I'm going to just go see what these people got going. Because we are so devoted to you. God, grow us in you. Teach us what it is to be devoted to you. No matter what happens in this world, may we always remain in you. Let us not waver and help us stay steadfast in you in all things. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.